We have seen there's some some bright lights in terms of cycling and, and walking and taking other conveyances that keep you physically distant from other people. I know that I've been biking a lot more lately because of that. Hi, everyone. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host for the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. It's so wonderful to have you along for the ride. This episode features a fascinating conversation with Jeff Wood of the Overhead Wire newsletter and the Talking Headways podcast. But before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our Patreon supporters and donors. Thank you so very much, everyone. Without your contributions, I could not make this content happen. Oh, and by the way, if you are enjoying the Active Towns podcast and you are in a position to contribute, please consider helping out. I'll include the appropriate links in the show notes, or you can just head over to our website at activetowns.org. Your investment directly makes conversations like this one with Jeff Wood possible. Thank you all so much. Okay, let's get rolling. This is John with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am delighted to have online here Jeff Wood of the Overhead Wire. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing well. Jeff, let's start off by bringing everybody up to speed. Where are you at right now? I'm in San Francisco, and I'm here on my street, and which actually just got closed, uh, well, not closed, but opened as a safe street here in San Francisco. We just announced a number of streets. So my street is actually one of the safe streets, which I'm really excited about. I haven't gotten outside yet to explore my safe street, which I have been for the last 14 years. But here I am just kind of at my house. I It's kind of strange because I already worked from home, and so most people obviously have been quarantined, but I was doing the pre-quarantine because I worked from home and never really went out much except for maybe to the bank for banking or anything like that. So my weekends were when I got out, but now everybody has to stay in. So I'm kind of in an interesting predicament in that I'm doing the same thing I was before. So I want to talk a little bit about San Francisco specifically, you know, in relation to the pandemic, because of all of our cities across the nation, San Francisco was one that really bucked the trend. I mean, if you looked at the density of San Francisco and, you know, compare it to New York, which, you know, on the continent of the United States, that's probably the best comparison we have, uh, they really in retrospect, in hindsight, you guys locking down as quickly and aggressively as you did seem to make a difference. What's what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the the health authorities for the counties here uh, made a really strong statement. They there's like there's been a number of stories actually in this SF Chronicle about this specifically. So if folks want to go and read a more detailed piece. I'm not the super expert on it, but the the county health authorities definitely got on it early. They knew it was coming, and actually we found out yesterday that they found a case that happened way before the first case that we thought was happening before here in the Bay Area. So the first case, I think, was like February, late February or something like that in Washington uh, State in in, uh, Seattle. And actually the first, because they did some autopsies, the first actual case was here in the Bay Area in the South Bay, um, I think around February 8th. So, you know, that timeline might even get pushed back a little bit. But the health authorities here knew it was going to happen. And so they called it, basically, they called the game early. And the the leaders listened to the health authorities and they followed suit. So the mayor here was like, okay, shut it down. And at the time, it was really interesting because 
I know that the Warriors were really pushing back on it. They were saying, "Why? What are you doing? We're we're still going to play our games. We're still going to go, you know, through with these large group events." And you know, the city said, "Nope, you're not going to." And then eventually, all of the cascading effects of what happened with Rudy Gobert for for the NBA and other things happened, and so I, the whole country kind of got the memo. But early on, the county health authorities here, the the mayors, and then the state got in got involved real quick and and shut it down kept people from gathering in large groups and then put in the order to stay at home. Now, Jeff, you, you mentioned that you work from home. So let's let's really dive into what it is you do at the Overhead Wire. Give us a little bit of a background about the firm and the service that you provide and uh, and also tell us about the origins of the name. Sure. So my favorite thing, though, is when people ask, what do you do? It, it, it harkens back to that wonderful Mike Judge Austin-related movie, uh, <laughs> office space where the Bobs are sitting in a room and they have across from uh, the Peter's character, uh, the character named Peter, and they're saying, "What do you say you do here?" <laughs> so the Overhead Wire was actually created in 2006 as a blog. I worked for an organization called Reconnecting America and the Center for TOD, and after I actually left the University of Texas at Austin in the fall of 2005, I actually moved here to work for Reconnecting America in the Bay Area, and. At the time, I, I had started a blog locally in Austin, but it wasn't really well read and I, it was just for fun. And actually it ended up being some personal stuff that I, so I've hidden the blog on, online. I can't even, I don't even know if it exists. I took it off of the, I said, you can't find this on Google and all this other stuff. So it probably exists out there somewhere. But basically, I asked my boss at the time, Shelly Patisha, who uh, now works uh, at NRDC, if I could write a blog about the stuff that I wanted to talk about outside of work. And she said, sure, go for it. <laughs> I don't think at the time many people understood the kind of idea of blogs or what they meant. So I came up with this idea for the Overhead Wire, which is just the, you know, I was, I'm interested in transit. I'm interested in light rail and streetcars and all these other things that we were working on at work and the development effects related. And I felt like that seemed like a good name for uh, a blog. And so I started that then. And at the same time, I started a newsletter at Reconnecting America called, it was called at the time, The Other Side of the Tracks. And so every day we'd send out news to people. It actually started because I started sending news to my boss, Shelly, at the time. And I think she got a little tired of, of me sending 10 or 15 different emails with 15 different news items in them. So she's like, hey, can you put this in one? I'm tired of getting all these emails from you. So I ended up putting them all in one and then it ended up going out to our board and then it ended up going out to anybody who wanted to sign up for it and it got somewhat popular. So we'd have this news that went out every day from Reconnecting America and, and it was all about cities and transportation and urban planning and urban ideas. And then later on, about eight years after when Reconnecting America disappeared, I was thinking about what I wanted to do with myself because uh, I was out of a job. And I had a number of people email me and ask me where my newsletter was because they had been getting it for you know seven, eight years in some instances and were wondering where it was. So I continued that and started the Overhead Wire and, and actually kind of consolidated all these brands that I had created because I, I had a website called The Direct Transfer. I had a newsletter called The Other Side of the Tracks and I had a blog called The Overhead Wire. So I just figured, you know, I'm already kind of known as the Overhead Wire. That's my Twitter handle. I might as well just call it the Overhead Wire in full. So I consolidated and here we are. Fantastic. And is really serving a, a very, very interesting and special role around the country and or probably even globally of being able to provide a consolidated list of relevant stories that that break on a daily basis. How, how many, uh, I, I can't remember the exact number of the number of publications you're constantly scanning every single day. 
Well, I don't know. I think I think I have over 700 RSS feeds, but I think I go through about 1,500 uh, news items a day. And I, I don't read them all, obviously. It's a scan, but I skim through, you know, go through. I have my Google News searches and I have my RSS feeds and I have my Twitter, you know, Twitter feeds and all that stuff. So I probably go through about 1,500 a day and I cut it down to about 30. And as I just mentioned, it, it's an incredible resource. And the the fact that somebody is is taking the time to call through and all these different types of articles it is an incredible service. It's a it's something that I know that you have been able to build up enough revenue and you know enough clients you know from around the country to be able to you're making a living at this, correct? Yeah. Always trying to build it to get larger, but yeah, it, it sustains me for sure. I do that. And we have the podcast, Talking Headways, of course, which uh, has ad revenues. And then we also have, and the Patreon. And then we also have, do a number of different things for people over the all over the country. I do some news clipping services for, say, like Caltrans. I, I do podcasts uh, at the Revolution podcast. So we do one a month for them. And then that shows up on Talking Headways about a month later after it's actually uh, released on the on the Revolution podcast. And then I do a number of things where I go to conferences and I do live streams and and other things like that. So I'm I'm kind of all over the place. But yes, it's it's nice to to have created something that sustains me, and I and I appreciate all of my support that I get from folks uh, such as yourself. I appreciate that. Yeah, and definitely you are an inspiration and one of the reasons why I decided to start this podcast uh, after eight years of uh, running the Active Towns Initiative is is seeing and hearing and listening to you. You know, I'm, I've got, it's it's great to hear your voice, by the way, Jeff, in the sense that your, your voice is in my head at least twice a week, every week anyways. And so now we can actually have a true dialogue then because, you know, previously when I was like talking to you, you wouldn't respond back. <laughs> yeah, you you know you know this by now though that when as you're doing your podcast you'll hear from folks that are like hey I was listening to your podcast on the way to work or anything like that and and it's it's kind of interesting to think that you're in somebody's ears at some point during the day uh, even though you don't really know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, here's here's a question for you. So, you are consuming all of this information and you've been doing this for years. You said 14 years now, correct? Yeah, we started in uh, the newsletter in 2006. So I guess that's 14, huh? If I do the math correctly. <laughs> you've been you've been on the cusp of this and all things, you know, urbanism and transit and, you know, the phrase that I think that uh, was out there is this this concept of complete communities. And I frequently am talking about, you know, traditional development patterns and things of that nature when we when we talk about creating walkable bikeable communities where you can get to meaningful destinations and all this. So you've been doing this for many, many years. What's it been like being inundated with so much information about a novel coronavirus and these wild impacts that we're seeing with COVID-19? Yeah, I guess, you know, it's tough because there's there's some tough days, I'm going to be honest. It comes at you really fast and there's a lot of it. And Behind that is, I saw this number yesterday, I think it, at, as of recording, or around over 40,000 deaths. And so I'm in my house. I don't really see this. I'm not, you know, seeing all this, but there's, it's a little tough. And I, I've actually told myself that if I get to the point where I need to take a little break, I'll take it because I think that 
it can be a little bit over, overwhelming uh, in terms of, of, of just getting all this news coming at you about all the pain and the heartache and, and the suffering that's going on, not just here in the United States, but around the world. I mean, what's happening in Italy and what, what's happening um, now in Japan and in other places, it's, it's really, um, it's a lot of, it's, it's just bad. That's, there's no sugarcoating it and, and putting it in different languages. But at the same time, there's also some hope there. There's also opportunities to see what happens when people do can see what happens when you when you reduce your emissions, right? So I just saw this really cool map of India that showed from NASA that showed particulate matter in India, and the numbers and the the look of of the the region as a whole is is astounding, and what the difference can be. And I think this actually could be a way that people see a path forward for reducing you know greenhouse gas emissions, reducing climate change impacts. All those things that we've been talking about for a long time from a sustainable development standpoint, we can start to see what happens if you just flick the switch and turn to all electric or or figure out a way to reduce the particulate matter that impacts so many people from a health perspective. So I think there's two sides of it. Like I said, there's there's kind of the pain and suffering side, which is is it's not fun. It's not fun to come in every day to the office and and in my front room and see all this stuff happening and, and how it's impacting people. But at the same time, if we're going to stay, <laughs> keep doing it, we have to look at the positives as well. So I think that there's some out there and I think we can find some good things from this, even in a bad situation. Yeah. It's been interesting to me to see how different cities are responding to this. And I know that you're monitoring it just like I'm monitoring it. Of course, my filter is a filter of what cities are doing to enhance active mobility and improve that uh, built environment quickly to try to encourage healthy physical activity and the ability for their residents to be able to get outside safely and be able to get a little little bit of physical activity in while still maintaining a safe, healthy physical distancing. What's that been like for you? Well, to see it, it's been really interesting to see what people are saying about it and how important it is. And as if maybe they didn't realize that it was important before to get out and get your exercise and go go for a walk. I mean, it's really great for our mental health, obviously. There's also been really interesting things happening around the world in terms of pop-up, in terms of tactical urbanism. So we see what's happening in New Zealand. The transportation minister is actually an urban planner. And so they were the, one of the first ones to, to fund some pop-up uh, bike lanes and some tactical urbanism interventions. And so we see that. We see what's happening in Oakland. They actually already had a program that they were working on for slow streets. And so they just kind of ramped it up. And actually, uh, Warren Logan, who uh, is at the city of Oakland, is going to, I'm going to release the podcast today. But uh, we're talking about, you know, Oakland's process for that and what that means and and how they're moving forward. And and then you see the negatives as well. I mean, you see what's happening in New York City with Bill de Blasio having to be dragged <laughs> to to have safe streets and, and what's happening there. So, and I, and I was happy yesterday to see that my street became a safe street here in San Francisco. So there's so much stuff going on. And and I love the work that that Mike Leiden is doing with his spreadsheets that he's put together. Uh, you know, the folks that wrote the Tactical Urbanism, Ur- Urbanism Guide, as well as all the other organizations that are putting things together. There's Transit Center, there's NACTO, there's there's all these uh, folks putting together really great resources around what's happening with this new paradigm that we can see and and what happens in the future. I'm, I am heartened too to see that there are leaders like ours here in San Francisco, Jeff Tumlin, who are looking at this as an opportunity to see how fast the buses can actually go, for example. So, 
usually the buses are stuck behind traffic. But, you know, if you look at the bus speeds now using data that are happening because of the lack of vehicles out there, you can see how fast the buses can take their routes and what that means if they dedicate the lanes in the future rather than giving some sort of an estimate or figuring it out by you know, running them at night or something along those lines, or in a real world situation, you get this really tactile data that you can see what's happening. So I'm excited about all that. So what are you excited about? You must see some of this stuff too. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, curious. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, uh, and, and again, since I'm, I'm kind of viewing this and, and seeing this through that lens of how it's, you know, enhancing the relationship that people are having with their streetscapes that's been the most heartening i mean since i uh, since i know that you are very familiar with the austin area uh, in our neighborhood here in the south austin area the streets are you know sort of circa 1940s immediately post world war 2 uh, era and there's no sidewalks and the the streets have always been shared space but now what you have is a situation where uh, people walking, biking, uh, strolling, rolling of all sorts of different mobility devices outnumber cars, outnumber the motor vehicles uh, 10 to 1. And so it's it's a really, really interesting and positive development that I'm seeing duplicated city after city, area after area, really around the country and around the globe. What does have me a little bit concerned is the relationship with transit and what might be the the negative impacts with transit. I felt like we had some really good mojo, and I know you're following this really closely here in the Austin area. We were getting ready to ramp up a bond that, you know, was hopefully going to take uh, our transit to that next level. I don't know what's going to happen with that now. What are some of the concerns or some of the things that you're seeing, you know, in that era? Well, you've seen a lot of cities decide to cancel their whatever bond measures they might have or, or tax increases um, for transit because just out of or any bond measure for that matter, I think there's going to be a really high turnout, obviously, <laughs> coming up during a presidential election. And and as an Austinite, you know all about presidential elections and transit uh, connections from 2000. But basically... You're going to see stuff, people canceling just because I, I don't know if there's going to be an appetite for new taxes given uh, or even uh, bond increases uh, just because of what's happening to people personally. Uh, a lot of job losses, a lot of service level job losses and not a lot of help from the federal government. I know they say they are, but it just doesn't it doesn't feel like they're actually taking it as seriously as as I'd like them to. Um, but I think you'll you'll see that a lot of these plans that were had beforehand might get lost in the shuffle because of the the pandemic, which is really unfortunate because finally, I, I felt like I Austin had a plan I could get behind, and I really was enjoying what I was seeing so far. So it's tough, uh, and it's going to be tough, I think, in all those facets of life, but this is just something that's going to probably fall by the wayside if i'm if I'm being honest. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I'm such a huge fan of public transit is I know that pretty much every single transit ride is an active mobility trip <laughs> on either side of walking to that transit stop or, you know, biking to that transit stop or on the other end, you know, jumping off uh, the train or jumping off the bus and walking to your final destination or jumping on a, a, a bike share bike or a scooter micro mobility device. 
one of the trends that I was noticing prior to all of this was this concept of transit being viewed as an essential service. We saw some major cities and some major transit lines, you know, saying, you know what, we're going to eliminate the fares. We see that this is something that needs to be incentivized. Speak to that a little bit. Hmm. That goes to the uh, free fare movement, I think, that that folks were talking about a lot before all this happened. Maybe in the last uh, part of last year, there was a real flurry of discussion about whether transit should be free. I don't know if I, I fall in that camp. I think that there's you know, definitely something to be said about making transit accessible for more people, whether that's the unbanked or whether that's folks that might not necessarily have access to cards, you know, fare cards and those types of things. It's also interesting to see that now they have no choice but to necessarily take away the fare box because the drivers are at the front of buses and they need to figure out a way to protect them from the coronavirus as drivers of these buses that take a lot of people around the cities. So you might actually see, like we were talking about before, you might actually see these experiments of of fare box and what happens uh, and how people accept it. I also think that there might be a problem with uh, later on people having a little bit more fear about taking transit. And unfortunately, it seems like there's a leaning in this direction where I don't know if it's reasonable to think that coronavirus is necessarily spread through transit, as it were, uh, because of the proximity you have to be to people. But at the same time, there's a, a real fear about that happening. And so I think you might see a reduction in ridership for a, a couple of years, at least until we find a vaccine or we figure out what's going on or how to, to untransmit um, the virus. So I'm actually worried about that as well. People not taking transit just because of fear. But that's also opened up other avenues as well. And I want to see transit as an essential service, but also as a service that's provided for everybody to take. Because if we just view it as a, an essential service, then and, and we should because we need to get people to their work and their jobs and, and access to health care and access to education and other things like that. But I think it needs to work for everybody. So it can, you know, if it's going to work for the folks that need it the most. So I think that's a really important point, too. But but like I was saying, uh, you know, I think that we'll see what's happening with uh, the transit coming up and, and organizations like UTA, which is Utah Transit Authority. I'm sorry I'm jumping around a bit, but I, like so many things are entering my head <laughs> as I'm thinking about this. But UTA, for example, says they probably won't be back to normal until for about three years even. So uh, there's also the funding mechanism uh, issue that comes into play. How much money are they going to get to actually run the service? But but we have seen there's some some bright lights in terms of cycling and, and walking and taking other conveyances that keep you physically distant from other people. I know that I've been biking a lot more lately because of that. Uh, I biked before, but I had to go get a U-Haul, for example, to to move my girlfriend and into my house. And, you know, I, I had to ride my bike to the U-Haul place uh, instead of take the bus, which is what I would usually do. So there's other, th- you know, there's a trade-off that that's happening, especially in places where you can, you can actually make that trade-off. And I think we'll see, like we were talking about before, more and more uh, cities start to adapt to that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, to see what happens in the positive light. I don't know if I'm necessarily looking forward to see what happens in the negative because it, it will be damaging, I think, to a lot of transit agencies. And I think we're going to have a need for a bailout. There's one other thing that's actually interesting that I'm interested in your thoughts about this too, and I've been thinking about it for the last couple weeks or so, is taxes. Because as we know, there's a lot of folks that are out of work, a depression in the economy that's going to really hit hard, I think, um, when this is all over. 
but are taxes basically in your mind, the kind of the fairest way to fund transit or to fund anything for that matter? I think you're going to see a lot of holes blown in city budgets in state budgets because the, the tax revenue is not going to be as high. And so there's going to be a lot of suffering. So are we going to start to think about more progressive way to tax people in order to fund these types of services? Is it going to be a sales tax uh, in the future? You know, because Austin, I know, has the one cent sales tax, you know, that they've had. And uh, Texas is allowed to have a one cent sales tax. And I know that we have sales taxes here. Some places have property taxes. Some people have motor vehicle excise taxes and all that stuff. So it, it runs the gamut. But, you know, is there going to be a possibility for a discussion about a more progressive taxation system on how to fund transportation services? Please pardon this very brief intermission in my conversation with Jeff. We'll get back to the funding question in just a moment. But first, I just want to provide a couple of quick reminders. Be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links to the programs, initiatives, and articles mentioned in this episode. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. We're out there on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, just to name a few. And finally, please, please, please share the podcast with at least one friend or colleague. I'm blown away by how large and broad the audience is getting, and I'd like to keep up this momentum in the movement to create safe and inviting places for all ages and abilities that promote a culture of activity. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to talking about how to fund sustainable mobility systems. Yeah, and you know, certainly one could look at our other, you know, primary mobility system that uh, has been funded by taxes and it's, you know, basically subsidized a use of the private automobile for many, many decades. And that's kind of what has gotten us into this <laughs> sticky <laughs> wicket. So, uh, yeah. And, and I guess Kia Wilson, uh, who I uh, interviewed last week and, and uh, released an episode, you know, she made that comment of, you know, hey, maybe, maybe we should be subsidizing transit, public transit in the same way that we have been subsidizing for, for decades, the, the use of the private automobile and, and creating that system. So I don't, I don't profess to have the right answer, but I do, uh, I do understand quite profoundly that our development pattern and the way that we've been building out our cities is unsustainable from you know, a financial perspective. I'm very much in the the strong towns camp and and the the work that Joe Minicozzi, uh out of Ashland, North Carolina, uh, does. And you know, in terms of fiscal analysis and and realizing that we we can't tax people enough to be able to pay for suburban uh, horizontal expansion, suburban sprawl, if you will. It just doesn't pay for itself. And so we need to look at a better way of moving forward that, uh, you know, probably goes back to a more traditional development pattern. So in a walkable, bikeable neighborhood, yeah, a complete community, if you will. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, that's the tough sell is getting people to understand how much it actually costs, right, to build a neighborhood and extend services to it, whether that's 
roads or electric or even internet. We're having this discussion right now about how our internet is not serving people the way it should in certain communities because they are underinvested in, because maybe they wouldn't make a profit for these large telecoms. And so they are seeing it as from a business perspective, from a dollars and cents perspective. But there are basic infrastructure needs that we do need. And and it's curious it's curious to see what might happen in the future if we do get those types of networks up. And I, this is something I've been talking a lot about on the on the podcast, as you know, uh, telecoms and stuff like that. So we we cover all, all kinds of stuff and it it always gets kind of intermingled in my brain because it 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 all works together in one big system. Yeah, it does. And and speaking of different systems and integrating. Um, before this all, you know, played out, one of the things that I was most excited about was this concept of integrating a transit system with an active mobility system. So that just as we described earlier, when at either end of a transit ride, you've got an active mobility uh, trip that, you know, could be made so that you're, you're not necessarily quote unquote driving to a, you know, park and ride area, if you have the ability to get to the transit stop by walking or biking, that really opens things up. And the the system that I've had a chance to uh, study quite extensively in the last couple of years has been the Dutch system and being able to use the extensive bike network to be able to get to transit and then jump on a very, very convenient transit to get to your destination, that far away trip, get to your destination and then be able to easily uh, jump on another uh, bike share type bike. Uh, they have their own bike share system as part of the transit uh, entity and, and or, you know, you might be close enough to walk from there. And I thought that that was going to be something that would for for North America, that seemed to me to be a really interesting prospect, especially with the new technology of an electric assist bike share bike. Because then you're talking about a radius, a catchment area for each transit stop that's quite impressive. Yeah, I think you'll see more of that in the future, especially as people um, start to realize that they can bike in their neighborhoods. I think they're realizing maybe now that they can bike in their neighborhoods. And so once people get on, it seems like they really like that. The Dutch system you're talking about, I'm curious if it's if it's a new new thing or if you're talking about just basically, you know, the folks that bike to the station, they leave, they have a burner bikes on both sides. They <laughs> they go to the station, they park their bike in this huge parking lot outside of the front of the station, which is always fun to see in those Dutch cities. And then they take a train to wherever their destination might be, you know, Delft or Rotterdam or whatever else, and then get off. And then they have a burner bike on the other side where they hop on and, and just kind of uh, roll to wherever they need to go. That's kind of the first mile, last mile, ultimate solution to, to getting between between big cities and in in, uh, in the in the lowlands there, yeah, and and specifically, you know, what's really nice about that is we we, we do use that euphemism of first mile, last mile, but in reality, it, it really ends up being more like uh, a radius of you know three to four miles, even if they need it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we do see plenty of people who are using and still use that concept of a bike on either side and they have that burner bike over there but they also with the uh, the bike share bikes the or the the shared bikes that are part of the system it's their ove feats 
uh, bike. And so it's the, it's the yellow and blue bike that is available. You know, you get off the, the, the train, uh, you mentioned Delft and you get off the train in the Delft station, you go down, it's, uh, at the lower level there, it's underground parking, uh, for all the bikes. Very, very convenient, convenient. They have prioritized bicycle parking in a safe covered environment. And, you know, when I say safe, if, if, if anything, the biggest challenge is trying to f- remember where you left your bike, if you're leaving your own bike, but if at the other end, you're, you're needing a bike and just easily check that bike out, it's all on the same integrated card. And so that's the part of the integration uh, of the transit systems or, or the mobility systems that I think, you know, holds great promise for us. Yeah. I, I agree. I, it would be funny if uh, if you had a beeper on your on your bike so you could click a click it and they'd be like that Seinfeld episode where they're walking around looking for the for the parking space. Where did I park my car? Where did I park my bike? Uh, hopefully, everybody can. It's it's almost like um, it's almost like when you go to the go to the airport and you you get your bags and maybe your bag looks like somebody else's. I've learned a long time ago you have to leave a little token of some sort on your on the outside of your bag so you know which one it is. My mom uses a little fluff fluffy puff thing that's like a different color than the black bag and so i have a little lego yoda on mine uh that tells me that it's my bag and so maybe maybe that's the way you do your bikes too is maybe i leave a lego yoda on my bike and i can find it jeff you you mentioned you you used the bike to get to the u-haul gosh san francisco's rather hilly please tell me you have an electric assist bike i don't i don't i have an eight-speed internal hub on my linus bike it's a nice bike. I like it. I actually, when I, when I sold my car in 2010, I used the proceeds or half the proceeds to buy my bike. So it was a, it was a big purchase, but I definitely worth it. You know, in the, in the mission, in the Noe Valley mission area where I live, it's pretty flat. So there's not a lot of a need for the electric assist bike. If I'm being honest, there is a hill to get up to my house a little bit, but it's actually the bike street, uh, designated bike street in the neighborhood. So it, it actually used to be a streetcar street as well. And it was the easiest way to get up the hill, so the streetcar didn't have to grind up too many, uh, too many, too many pieces of sand on the way up. So I can get there pretty easily. So it's not, it's not too big a problem if you're on the flats or if you know where the cut throughs are. The hills do provide problems for some folks that live up higher in, in the in the city and in the in the hills. But for the most part, you know, in the mission and other spots, there's actually really good access, uh, and you don't have to you don't have to worry about the hills because you can you can get there going specific routes like through the hate uh, lower hate area there's a, a specific geographic oh what's the name what am i what's the word i'm looking for formation i guess it's like a it basically cuts through two hills and it's called the wiggle and so basically you're wiggling back and forth on streets to get the flattest route between two neighborhoods that have hills on both sides so we actually have pretty good access to places that are flat so i, I don't i'm not uh, i'm not in the market necessarily for a electric assist bike at the moment um, maybe in the future, but my bike works out pretty well. Now, you again, we we talked about the fact that you've been doing this for some time and really advocating for not only transit, but this concept of complete communities. What guidance do you have for others who might be l- tuning in, listening in and thinking, well, gosh, this this all sounds quite exciting. Just somebody who has discovered this. What advice would you have for them to make a difference in their neighborhoods and their communities? Sure. So there's so much stuff going on. And I think that sometimes you can easily get overwhelmed, but maybe picking one little thing and going for it could be helpful. Maybe that's riding your bike to work, or maybe that's, you know, volunteering at your local organization that focuses on this stuff. 
maybe it's a local nonprofit, maybe it's an maybe it's a group blog. You know, the folks in Seattle and there's folks in Milwaukee and in, in Minneapolis and even uh, Washington D.C. that wrote was they were writing their own blogs and they were they were putting together their own thoughts and ideas on the stories and then they got together with all the other folks they were writing blogs in the area. And I think from, you know, one of the things that I hear from a lot of the folks that work on those blogs now is that it can be hard to recruit people in to, to write their opinions and their thoughts. They, A, maybe they don't think they're a good writer, or maybe they don't think that they have anything important to say, or maybe they're just worried about speaking up about an issue. But really, all you have to do is kind of, and I, I you know, it sounds almost uh, standoffish when I say that, uh, you know, all you have to do is, but, but really, you know, if you want to just sit down and write a hundred words or something like that, and then put it out there. I think that's the first thing and the best thing you can do is, is put your thoughts out there and then discuss it with other people locally. The biggest kind of barrier we have now is these discussions that kind of talk past each other where you're, you're on one side, maybe there's somebody on another side and you can't get on the same page, but just putting your thoughts out there are really super helpful. And I think for me, the thing that I did that got me into all this mess was starting that blog and just writing my thoughts down. And, you know, when you get older, you you, you start to see that maybe you're not going to write, write as much because you realize that you don't know as much as you thought you knew. But we all have little additions to make and we can all, you know, get to a point where we're making meaningful contributions over time. So I think as a first step, you know, just figure out where you can contribute to write something or a podcast or do anything like that. And then as you become more comfortable with the, the organization or with the group or even with your own voice, then you can ramp it up. And I think that you can definitely make change if you move that direction. So that's that's the thing that I did. And I think that that's the, the, the way that I would move forward in the future is if I have something that I want to focus on and, and think that I have a really important opinion to give, maybe I should just give it by writing my own little piece. And so that's kind of how I started. And And the podcast was actually started because my friends at Streets Blog asked me if I wanted to write a column each week. And I said, no, that's too much time. That's too, too much effort. Uh, maybe we can talk for an hour. And uh, it turned into this really fun podcast where we get to talk to folks all over the all over the world about these issues. And, you know, every once in a while, maybe I, sh- maybe I should have taken them up on, <laughs> on writing something. Um, but I decided to talk instead. So it doesn't always have to be writing. It doesn't always have to be talking. It can be volunteering in some form or fashion. And it could be anything not necessarily related to transportation and urban planning. It could even be going to the library and, and volunteering there as well. It's just getting involved. I think that's the biggest thing. Yeah. And you said something there that just kind of triggered something in my mind and bringing it back around to something you said earlier too, which was you've got a new open streets (laughs) (laughs) right out your door now. And so talking, even though we have to do it at a distance right now, I think that there's so much pent up demand and desire to try to connect with others. I think being able to talk through these things and talk about that new environment that that you, that we have right outside our doors and perhaps maybe doing a little bit more listening than talking and giving people a chance to absorb and, and process what we're seeing out there on our, in our public realm, on our streets, because that's, it, this is a, a vastly different reality that has suddenly been thrust upon us. I think that's that's right. I, I really like that idea of of going out and and kind of talk talking with folks about what's going on. But also, there's another thing I would add is being patient with people. And 
one of the hard things for advocates is, especially if you've been spending a lot of time in a specific topic area, is, you know, talking to folks who have different opinions from you or have different thoughts than you do and kind of listening uh, to what they have to say. I know there's probably a, a tweet every single day where I'm like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. <laughs> but if you just kind of sit back and try to see the other person's perspective, think about it from that you know, from their perspective and see maybe how you can integrate some of that into your thinking, I think there that, that can go a long way. And listening, like you said, is really important. Uh, one of my favorite things about, you know, we have a Monday show, which is where me and some uh, some of my friends, Chrissy, Tracy, and, and Anna and other folks get to chat and we give our opinions. But for the Thursday podcast, the Talking Headways podcast, it's a lot of folks coming on and, and the, they're experts at what they're talking about. And so I like to ask those questions and then just sit back and listen to what they have to say because, you know, they're the ones that have been doing it for so long. It's kind of funny because I'll, I'll ask folks to come on and, and they, they'll ask if they can have the questions ahead of time or if they have to worry about anything that I'm going to ask them. And these are folks that have been doing this stuff for 10, 20 years and they're the experts at this specific thing. And so they don't have anything to worry about from me. I'm not going to try to get them on any specific question. And I'm trying to learn. And so that's kind of funny that these experts, even the experts that are the, the folks we should look up to on these specific topics are worried about whether they have the right answers. And I think they do have the right answers, but it's funny to, to hear some of their, their reticence. And I think that's the reticence that shows up in us too, when we worry about whether we can go out and make a difference in the, in, in the world by either writing or podcasting or whatever it is we might do. Yeah, I totally agree. And and thank you. Thank you for letting me turn the tables and, and uh, have a chance to interview you. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate that. <laughs> Jeff, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Oh, gosh, that's a big question. There's so much going on right now. <laughs> if folks are interested in learning more about what's happening um, around the world in terms of transportation, urban design, urban issues, the environment, and research as it pertains to cities, definitely sign up for the newsletter. I do this every single day. It takes me about five hours a day to put everything together. I have an intern that helps me with this, so they work about two hours a day too. So we're saving you time <laughs> by going through all this information and, and cutting it down. So I think, um, you know, if I, if I can give a, a, a plug for, for the newsletter, I think I would do that. In terms of uh, what's going on right now with COVID-19 and all that stuff, I know folks are, are getting down about it a little bit. I think that I do too myself sometimes, and it's really rough to see some of the pain and suffering that's going on in the world. But at the same time, we have this really good opportunity to connect with each other. And you were talking about connecting on, on these uh, shared streets that we're opening up now. But I think, you know, reaching out to your friends and, and calling them and making sure that they know that you're there if, if they if they need you is, is really big. My sisters and I have been uh, watching movies on Saturday nights uh, together over over uh, Google Hangouts, and we can see each other's faces as we're watching Monty Python. And and uh, I'm having a virtual a virtual happy hour with my best friends from high school on Friday. And I think just kind of making sure we we aren't socially distancing, but just physically distancing and keeping that social aspect really strong is really important right now. And uh, I, I appreciate actually talking to you right now, John, because, uh, you know, it's fun to reach out and chat with people, especially if you can't have human contact as much as you want. 
I'm an introvert <laughs> mostly. And uh, most of the time I really like my space and my time and, and uh, you know, being to myself. But even working from home, I find that at the end of the week or, or on the first Thursday of every month, I go to a happy hour to make sure that I can get some human contact. And now I'm getting less than I was before. And so I think it's important to continue that contact if, if at all possible, even if it's over, uh, even if it's over the phone or a, a video chat system. Well said. Uh, that's a fabulous way to, to wrap this up. Jeff, thank you so very much. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Jeff Wood with The Overhead Wire. I cannot recommend his daily news service and the Talking Headways podcast enough. So I hope you'll check him out. I have the links in the show notes. And as a final reminder, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggested guests or topics in mind. You can reach me at john at activetowns.org. Well, that's all for episode number 19. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.